Welcome to A Cry for Kelp with me, Nick Williams, where I interview the movers and shakers of the seaweed industry. Today on the pod, I have Oriana Poindexter, a photographer and marine scientist focused on the intersection of art, science and marine natural resources. Oriana earned her degrees at Princeton University and the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at UC San Diego. She went on to work for nearly a decade with academic institutions, government agencies and environmental organisations as a consultant in the sustainable seafood and fisheries management arenas. Her photographs and cyanotypes, more on those later, are exhibited across the US and have been featured by the Getty Museum and the Wall Street Journal. She has also created interpretive visual exhibits for two of Southern California's leading aquariums, the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach and the Birch Aquarium of San Diego. She founded Pelagic Projects in 2020 to focus on interdisciplinary projects that bridge art and science, applying her expertise in both fields to engage the senses, inspire awe and impact positive change for the oceans. We had a great conversation about her love of seaweed and how her work is changing narratives around this organism. So, without further ado, let's hear from Oriana. Hello, Oriana. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Really good, thanks. Thanks very much for chatting with me all the way from San Diego. I always ask this to my guests um, when we've got so much to talk about. What was it that first got you into this world? You... I believe we're in sustainable seafood and fisheries management after your degree. Uh, what did you learn from that work and what drew you to it in the first place? I've always been really interested in the ocean and want to spend um, as much time as possible in and around it. Um, my degree, I studied um, marine biodiversity and conservation at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And out of that work, I became really interested in um, fisheries management and fisheries economics. Um Mostly because initially um, I was really interested in eating more seafood and I had learned that I was learning enough to understand that there is a responsible way to do that and a not so responsible way to do that as a consumer. Um, so I found that to be a really interesting um, kind of mental puzzle to think about. And um, so I went down that route. Nice. And but what was it that made you want to eat more seafood? Was it there there a health benefit in, in there that you were starting to understand better, or was it something else? Um, the health benefit it just tastes delicious. Um, <laughs> I started spearfishing um a little bit recreationally, um, and I it was another way to sort of interact with the ocean um in a in a different way than than just diving and surfing and studying. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it tastes amazing, mostly. It does. I, I get it. I get it. Totally. So, uh, so you, don't go, you go on to this master's thesis, which is in consumer seafood markets, correct? And uh, what did that? Uh, what what drew you to to go that deep? Um, I was looking at. See, I had this sort of um, realization that. When you go to the seafood market, you see sort of a window into the ocean as a consumer at your grocery store or in in other countries going into a more sort of interactive open air market. Um, that seafood market is a window into the ocean for a lot of people um, who aren't able to get into the ocean themselves. And thinking about things that way, I um, I wanted I started collecting data about um which sorts of species were sold in different countries and um, what relationship those species had with um, the fish that were actually swimming in the ocean off of those coastlines. Um, so that was really interesting to me, also from a visual perspective as a photographer. 
um, that idea of seafood markets as a window into the ocean for people that may may or may not be able to see see the ocean themselves. Um, I found that uh, an added uh, layer of interest there. Yeah, I can understand that because I think that lots of people will not realize, you know, people like me who are interested by the ocean and have lived near the ocean uh, for a number of years in my life. I, I feel very blessed that I've had that opportunity, but there are, I mean, there's a high majority of the world, a large majority of the world that doesn't live anywhere near the sea. And I'd never considered that their only prism through which that they can view uh, the ocean is through a seafood chapter. It's fascinating. And you did some work on the management side as well, is that correct? Yeah, after my degree, I ended up working as a contractor for NOAA Fisheries for eight years. Um, and the work I did with them sort of evolved over time. It started out as an extension of my master's thesis work, which was this, these seafood market surveys that I was doing, collecting data. Um, and then it evolved a little bit more into um, working to connect uh, fishermen, uh, fishery scientists, chefs and consumers um, and sharing all of the information that each of those uh, people along the supply chain relied on um, in order to make good purchasing decisions about seafood. That makes sense and it's really good sense but I'm I'm interested by this communication channel. Was there much of a communication channel open between these these separate stakeholders beforehand or was it, you, were you realizing that, there, that that was one of the big problems of that, that industry? There's definitely a communication gap. Um, these types of people that choose these careers are very different people um, fundamentally. So somebody that is going to be a good fisherman is not necessarily going to be a great fishery scientist. Um, and so they're just different ways of everybody has a different way of learning. Um, and you need to sort of consider that in how you communicate with different types of people. Um, teachers know this very well, um, and they understand this concept of needing to uh, communicate with different personalities in different ways in order to get the same information um, across successfully. So there's definitely a big gap between um, the scientist that spends most of their time in the lab or on the computer um, and somebody that uh, spends most of their day outside in the wild, um, doing a manual labor type of, of work. Um, so finding a way to bridge that communication gap because it is the, in the best interest of both parties to communicate well and communicate um, regularly and in, not in a confrontational way um, is definitely a big challenge. Uh, for sure, I can imagine. But it also a lovely opportunity for you because you you know that allows you to to work seamlessly between the lab the you know the, the fishing vessel the processing plant and the, and, and the consumer facing side of it so that's a what a great nursery uh, for you to learn all about this industry yeah i le i learned a lot um in all of those different places and um again i think my my mode of learning is very visual and so i wanted to go to all of these places i wanted to follow the fish from the ocean literally um, through the processing plant, from the fishing vessel to the processing plant, um, taking samples back to the lab, and then literally sometimes taking it to the restaurants <laughs> also. Um, for me, visually, it, it just, I needed to see this entire supply chain to make sense of it. Um, and then I sort of became this, this conduit for inf information in that way. Yeah, so it was a huge learning experience. Yeah, lovely. Um, I'm all very, very jealous. Um, 
and now obviously this is a seaweed podcast so tell me what was it that drew you to, <laughs> to seaweed initially was it its beauty or was it more the fact that you were hearing about this amazing potential it has to for, for you know, climate restoration and ocean restoration or was it was it something completely different uh, definitely the beauty of it. Um, I spend a lot of time free diving in off the coast here in San Diego, and we're really lucky to have uh, wild giant kelp forests. Um, and that environment is somewhere that I, I wish I could be all the time um, diving in those forests. Uh, they've definitely been diminished over the past 10 years due to um, the oceanic conditions that we've been experiencing. But they are there, they're doing their best, um, and they are so incredibly gorgeous. Um, so yeah, the beauty for sure. And then I started learning more and more about um, the fact that there, there were previously larger, denser, um, supported more life, but even in the state that I got to know them, um, they support so much life and they are such an incredible system to be able to be a part of and observe. Yeah, indeed. I've certainly I've not done it myself, and I really should uh, now that I'm running a podcast about. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to get out there and dive. Yeah, I really, I really must. I had no idea that it was off San Diego that they had. I, I always think of the kelp forest being off sort of Monterey and Northern California. Is is there much down down? Is it as much down in the, in the south of San Diego and there, in the north county San Diego? They definitely want. The water to be a little bit colder than it is here, especially now in the summer uh, when it hits 80 degrees, you can 80 degrees Fahrenheit in the water. You can really see the kelp suffer from it. Um, so definitely it prefers the colder water for sure. But we do have um, kelp year round here and um, it's just not it's not happy in the summer. You can watch it kind of melt away. It's sad. So that must be sad, but does it restore itself in, in the winter relatively well? We always think of this this organism being there. Yeah, so giant kelp is a perennial species. So if the water stays cold at the bottom, which it generally does here in San Diego, we have a pretty strong thermocline. Um, so even if it's 80 degrees Fahrenheit at the top, it can be 60 degrees Fahrenheit at the bottom of the water column. So that um, does really good things for the giant kelp. Um, they reproduce from their from the base of the organism. So as long as that base is able to withstand the, the high summer temperatures, then it can um, maintain its place on the reef and go on to um, succeed in the following year. Yeah. I see. Oh, that's good. Um, so were you always a photographer or did it, was it that, that you started to realize that, you know, kelp had this, this beautiful property that you wanted to just capture in some way or, or it always been there as, a, as your first thought when you started to work I had always been a photographer um, and I'd always wanted to, I've, I, as a photographer, you sort of have these things in your head that you imagine you want to make an image of someday. And you sort of, I don't know if actually this is true for all photographers, but for myself, um, I have these images in my head that I, I know I want to create. And um, the kelp is, is really central in that. Um, I've been photographing kelp for 10 years underwater and I still, you know, I'm not done at even close. I still haven't created all of the images that I want to create of the kelp forests and really images that communicate the scale of this organism and um, the scale of the habitat that it, it builds in the ocean. 
interesting. I, I do think the scale is is something that you know, as we get we come on to in, in our conversation about changing perceptions. I think the idea of kelp forest is quite hard for people to visualize. The idea of helping people visualizing our forest is really really quite easy. But kelp forests, you know, we just see them up front, up front, and you don't see them on mass. Do you do anything? I'm, I'm thinking with drones or anything like that just to capture just how large these organisms can go with it. I haven't done anything with drones. Um, I've had, I have some friends that photograph with drones, um, but I, I personally have not. They do use drones to, uh, to measure the, uh, the canopy cover of the kelp forests and to measure their size over time. Um, and so that's how they know generally, um, that's how they measure the increase or decrease in, in size of the kelp forests off the Pacific coast here, at least in California. Um, but personally, I have not had the chance to do that my the way i've found to be most effective from a artistic um way to communicate the scale is by using this uh very old photographic process called cyanotype it was actually predates photography as we know it discovered in 1842 um and it reproduces it creates images um at scale so i've been able to pull out pieces of giant kelp out of the water and create images that are the size of that kelp. So uh, the the largest images I've created so far are 15 feet by seven feet. So I know we are weird with our feet system here, but that's um, over, it's almost four meters long. Um, and so I pulled out that amount of giant kelp, created those four meter long images, and then those are currently installed on um, some pillars outdoors at a, at a hotel here in San Diego. And um, the reaction that I got from people who have been able to, to go see them is that they had no idea kelp was that big. And my response to that is that's just a very small section of the kelp. The kelp grows to a hundred feet long. This is just 15 feet. So um, it's really just a snippet of one individual <laughs> and that's one individual in a forest. Right. So um, that's been really cool to be able to get people standing up next to this installation and realize how small they are. Yeah, that's really arresting, isn't it? I think that's very cool. Um, I'm interested, tell me a bit more about, about your work with Pelagic Projects. It's your, your idea. Just give us the sort of the, the bluff of, of, of Pelagic Projects, what you're trying to do there. Yeah, so I started Pelagic Projects um, in order to focus on projects in this translational uh, communication gap space we were talking about earlier. Um, the, so I've been working on projects that uh, bridge marine science and um, visual communications. And uh, it's just me right now. Um, and I use it sort of as my own, um, it's a consulting business, um, but I also do uh, my art practice. Some of the projects I've been working on recently are an environmental education curriculum. Um, I've been working with a nonprofit in Peru on that, and we're developing a curriculum for um, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, uh, really focused on uh, sustainable small-scale fisheries, um, and also consulting with uh, local seafood companies on sustainability. Love it. Love it. Awesome stuff. So the real meat of this conversation, of course, is, is this, this, this this um, drive you have to change perceptions around seaweed and I'd, I'd love to get your your take on it like wh where do we go with it because at the moment it is you know it, 
if we are going to get seaweed to become much more in the mainstream, and obviously a lot of people don't know how, how in the mainstream it is already. A lot of seaweed, especially right. uh, in Europe and abroad, is in lots of things. It's in nutraceuticals, it's in the thickener agents, it's in uh, lots of fertilizers and things like that. But but you don't see it, and it just certainly doesn't look like your beautiful images. So we need to, in order to sort of grow the understanding, we need to start changing the perceptions of it from from this kind of smelly, yucky, slimy thing to something beautiful and a real, you know, it's got this real potential. How, how are you going to go about doing this? Tell me. Yeah. Um, I, well, I wish I had a, a direct answer and that we could just action um, right now. But I think the the first step, at least here um, in the U.S. on the West Coast, is to really address the concept of social license, um, which is exactly. the, the public acceptance of an idea. Um, and in California, we are really struggling with that in terms of for aquaculture in general. Um, and for marine resource use in general, um, people have have a very strong environmental conservation mindset, which is excellent, wonderful. Um, but it's it's very kind of one track and doesn't allow for critical thinking about how are we going to continue to feed ourselves? How are we going to manage? our resources and develop those resources in a way that can benefit both humans and the environment that we depend on. Um, and I think seaweed aquaculture can and should be a large part of that um, in terms of when we're talking about marine marine resources. Um, and it just is not at this point here in um, in California specifically. And there is no there's no kind of public conception that it could be even. So we're really at, at zero, I feel here, um, when speaking of the general population here in California, of thinking about seaweed as, as a solution, as a resource, um, as something that we can be developing. Um, it's really, yeah, we just start, <laughs> we need to start talking about, we need to start thinking about it. Um, and uh, we're just not. But the perception, of course, from, from me over the pond is that, you know, it is California is the place where not only is the, is the kelp famous, you know, the, the California giant kelp to me is, is one of the more famous and more recorded um, uh, uh, seaweeds that I've ever come across, I think. And, uh, and then also there's this, you know, the surfing community. I think of mm -hmm. the surfing community being full of real pro-environmentalists who, who have open minds. but I think what you're saying to me is they've got open minds to a certain point, but when it comes to seaweed, it's just this, uh, uh, to coin a phrase, uh, imbuggerance that, that, that sits on the, uh, on the, on, on the beach sometimes and, and smells a bit. And, and, and therefore, I don't understand why the seaweed, sorry, the surfing community isn't sort of, you know, getting into this. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't either. Um, they, yeah, when I first moved to San Diego, there was, there was more kelp here and people, their people surfing would regularly get tangled up in kelp and not be able to catch their wave because the kelp had tangled around their leash and really expressed a lot of frustration at those incidents. Um, yeah. now that doesn't happen anymore, uh, because the kelp forests have diminished to a point where they are no longer in the surf line, um, here in San Diego because of the water temperatures. And I think um 
that has for the surfers that notice um that has made them much more aware well not much more it's made them aware that there's something changing and that but their reaction to that is well we need to to save it we need to recover it we need to we can't be using it um so the idea that our kelp forests are in the wild are suffering due to rising water temperatures ocean acidification all of these things um is sort of having the opposite reaction of what you and I are talking about in most people. It's having them be very um, reactive and not want to use it, want to save, protect, preserve, not touch, um, definitely not use it as a food or or um, ingredient or additive. Um, so that is the conversation around kelp to the to that extent um, among the environmental community in California at this point. That so it's, what tool it's diminished you... and it must be untouched, untouched, protected, saved. I see. Um, but it's not a monolith, is it? The, the 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 Californian kelp community, or sorry, the California Californian ocean oceans people's community. There are you know lots of different groups of people within. Oh, that. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to have a finer communication channel that works. The art is one of those things that transcends it all. So I was going to ask, you know, what what other tools? do we have do you have and you know us in the seaweed community have at our disposal to start to to change this perception and to start getting things moving so that there can be as you say a social license behind a lot of uh, really cool and you know worthy seaweed based products yeah i mean we have five senses at our disposal and i think we need to use all of them as as artists as communicators um we have visual arts we have performing arts we have culinary arts there's music there's um dance there's you know physical movement getting people in the water um a seaweed artist i i really respect i don't know if she would describe herself as a seaweed artist but i think she makes a lot of art about seaweed um says that her first job is to make the viewers stop and say wow and then she gets to talk about talk talk to them about seaweed um Josie Isolin, um, her work is really incredible. And she published a book recently that is just like a visual treat about seaweed. And um, I really took that to heart. And I, it's, that is our first job. It's to really stop somebody in their tracks and, and change that perception immediately. Like they, to give them an image that they had no idea was connected to their previous mental image of seaweed. And then you can have a conversation. Yeah, I like it. Stop, and then you get them. You know, I, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Well, what, and that's what's happening. You guys are doing that. You know, you and Josie are, are doing that. Um, are there any other people, uh, you know, around the world doing it as well and, and, and helping to start to change the perceptions? Because I just feel like sometimes it's a little. You know, I speak to lots of people in this industry, and, and we're all we're all seeing off the same song sheet. We all understand the value. We all understand there's some problems and some frictions, but we're all working together to get over it. But getting the layman on board is just is just tricky. Whenever I tell anybody yeah. I'm doing a seaweed podcast, I get some really odd looks. I'm sure you do, yeah. Um, and uh, and I just think uh, I often think it's because I've got a terrible mustache at the moment. But actually, I think it's mainly that, that people just don't think of seaweed at all. So the idea that I, when I say yeah. I'm doing a podcast about it is really weird. But I don't. So so I've got them, and then I and I'm doing the same thing as Josie. But I'm only getting them when I'm at like just meeting somebody for a coffee and I, or, or some, something similar. It's just those random occasions and. 
we kind of need to have a push, like a big marketing campaign, I would say, uh, that needs to happen. It needs to be a consistent, there needs to be a constant drumbeat of, of getting mm-hmm. the press out there. You need almost a seaweed spin doctor who can yeah. really sort of jump <laughs> on any opportunity to, to push the seaweed, uh, you know, the gospel of seaweed. Where, where do you think, is there any other people doing it? Where are, they, are there any other parts of the country, of, of, of California even, or, or the whole of the states that are doing it well and that, that they are starting to change the perceptions? Um, yeah, I think uh, definitely on the East Coast of the U.S., there's a lot more progress happening. Um, Bren Smith has of uh, Green Wave has started a, a incubator, I guess, um, in a way, or sort of a set of resources to help people start farming seaweed. Um, yeah. I mean, in in the English language, seaweed is not a great word. We could start with rebranding that. Um, in a way, <laughs> there's chefs that are uh, chefs at the forefront of this that are using the term sea vegetables, which is just very slightly better. Um, but those are all those all affect. But it's a bit hipstery, that. isn't it? It's a bit it's hipstery, a, and therefore yeah. <laughs> that 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 alienates other people. You need to. We need exactly. to find that. You know. A different, uh, but I, but I like it. I like anybody trying. But I think, and I, I was, and you, you mentioned chefs, and I'm wondering, therefore, that, that I think there's something at the nexus of chefs of, of food and art. Yeah, that, that, where where it could be, you know, really good. I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking this, but like a seaweed ball, like a big mm-hmm. big party somewhere where we get all the people to come together, and 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 and, and you get as many. Um, like non seaweed con- converts to come come along and s- sort of like taste as much seaweed as they can, but also see the beauty of it. But you know, you need to do so many, so it's just really hard to think of the medium. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, other cultures have used seaweed forever, have eaten seaweed forever. It's not a a novel concept um, for a lot of cultures, but for mainstream um, here in the U.S., it's uh, yeah, it's pretty weird. And even in a sort of a powder, not powdered, but kind of flaky seasoning form, there's a company here uh, in California called Daybreak Seaweed, Daybreak, I think, yeah, Daybreak Seaweed that does kind of seasoning blends. And even that, when I brought them home and was cooking with them, my my partner was like, oh, you're using seaweed today? I don't I don't think I want to eat seaweed. It's like, you're eating it? Or that's just what's happening today? <laughs> but even yeah, yeah. in that form, it, it causes people to kind of pause. Um, and it's so innocuous. It, it's just, you know, a little bit of extra flavor and, and nutrients. Um, but even at that, that's kind of like the bare entry, bare bones entry level. I feel that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think you need to keep doing what you're doing as much as possible and get that, get the message out there. Because uh, your art is absolutely stunning. And uh, if people want to see your artwork, where do they go to go and find it? Um, my website is probably the best spot. It's orianapdexter.com. Um, and my Instagram as well is updated a lot more regularly, uh, which is O-P-O-I-N-D-E-X. Um, and I show my work in galleries around San Diego um, and hopefully uh, more broadly soon. Well, we need to get you to Europe at least soon. There's a lot of stuff, exciting stuff happening over there. And uh, you need to start inspiring the the local artists in. I'm thinking in Brittany, in in the off the east coast of of sorry, the west coast of the UK and uh, and north coast of Europe. I think there's a lot of people there who would who would who would enjoy looking at your artwork and start, and that will start to make them stop and think. I do wonder, Ariana, what what where do you go with this? The the idea is that you're going to 
you're going to keep pushing your art and you're going to you know, just keep spreading the gospel. Do you have any any big plans over the next you know, five, ten years that you want? Where do you want to get to? Which would, what would feel like success for you? Um, just making larger and larger works that really communicate that scale. Um, and also working with uh, seaweed farms. I'd love to work with seaweed farms to take it kind of visually from from the water onto the plate or their end consumer, whatever that is, um, kind of following the way that I had followed the seafood um, as a student uh, from the water all the way to um, its final manifestation. Um, so I'd love to work with seaweed farms, photographing their the kelp in the water, um, maybe making these cyanotype works with the kelp out of the water and then um, following it to its final form. And, and that form obviously is that there's just so many different forms that it's coming into. Right. Yeah. Like, food, so packaging, things. additives. Yeah. Any, whatever form that it ends up in, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I was going to ask, you know, as we, as we come to the end, what, what is it that, um, you feel is has got the real uh the real chance to 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 change perceptions outside of art outside of all the visual all, of all the senses then the the product that you think will make people start mm -hmm. to believe to understand the you know the potential to see which, which do you think it is i feel like the packaging the bioplastic um single-use plastic replacement is what will get seaweed into people's everyday lives um, and so I'm really, really cheering for all of the the people working in that segment. Um, I think the food, you're always going to have people that don't want to eat it. Um, and that's yeah. fine. But I, I think getting it to be ubiquitous as packaging will, will do it. And I cannot wait because as an artist, you have to use so much plastic to package your artwork and protect it that's a really good point I can't wait I just to, really to want to see biofilm to package my artwork in <laughs> that's it that's the, there we go i've got a new there we go to the, yeah the we need the, archival new job yeah archival yeah. seaweed biofilm please <laughs> just, it, the, the problem is going to be it needs to you know that it will biodegrade so you it's only going to be able to survive yeah. another time but, yeah uh, i suppose if all it's been doing is shipping to somewhere and then it's going to be ripped off then that should be that should be okay, I hope. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah be, I feel that, like that the packaging will get it in in the mainstream, in people's hands, and and that hopefully will kick things off. Um, I did ha just just have a thought. Then there's a you know uh, you know of course Y Combinator up in uh, up in the Bay Area, the the, the big uh, incubator, the where Airbnb and all that lot came out of. I, well, if you don't, they're, they're just you very impressive. No. <laughs> but oh, it sounds. Oh, just, yeah. yeah, check them out. They're really cool. And the guy who runs it is a really interesting chap called Paul Graham. And he writes some lots of essays about how you find product market fit and how you grow markets and start marketplaces. Just a really bright man. Yeah. And one of the things that he says that I always remember is he says, just, just prove yourself in a narrow niche as possible and then expand from there. So I would say that, therefore, what we've got to do is we've just got to go hard on San Diego and just get San Diego to become... <laughs> The place where the seaweed, the perception of seaweed has has flipped on its head. Yeah, and I, I think you've got all the tools, especially you know with your massive talent. I think that there's a you know you're you're, you're well on your way, and I, I look forward to to watching you grow with it. And I hope that we can chat in the future. Oriana, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nick. Talk soon. Mm -hmm.